Our Enemy is in Blue, Police and Power in America, by Christian Williams. This is the second of two parts of Chapter 8, entitled Riot Police or Police Riots. A Glimpse at 1968. These facts speak to the level of police violence, but they say very little about its prevalence in crowd control situations. For that, we should consider a sample of police actions during a specific time frame. For example, during the year 1968, a banner year remembered for producing rebellions around the world. While in this respect 1968 is exceptional, it may also, for the same reasons, be seen to typify the official response to unrest. It certainly provided numerous widely varied examples for comparison. In January 1968, San Francisco police broke ranks and charged into the crowd at an anti-war demonstration, beating protesters. San Francisco also saw numerous rampages by the police department's tactical squad throughout the year, especially in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. During one such attack, a black, plainclothes officer was beaten by his white colleagues. During another, off-duty tactical squad officers moved through the Mission District, clearing sidewalks and assaulting pedestrians. Two officers went to trial for that stunt. Three black people were killed and almost 50 others injured when police and National Guard troops opened fire at a February demonstration against a white-only bowling alley in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Most of the wounded were shot in the back. In March, New York City police attacked a Yippie demonstration at Grand Central Station. Offering no opportunity for the crowd to disperse, they indiscriminately beat members of the crowd that had gathered. The same tactic was repeated at another Yippie march in April, this time in Washington Square. Later that same month, Students for a Democratic Society held a demonstration at Rockefeller Center. Jeff Jones, an SDS organizer, described the event as, quote, very militant, it turned into a street fight. I think there were eight felony and 14 misdemeanor arrests. There were beatings on both sides, unquote. A week later, on April 29, 1968, New York City police used clubs to clear some of the same students from occupied buildings at Columbia University. Police emptied the occupied buildings and then moved through the campus, beating any students they could find, whether or not they had been involved in the occupation. 132 students and four faculty were injured. Also in New York that fall, 150 off-duty cops filled a Brooklyn courthouse and beat several Black Panthers who were there to observe a trial. A week before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. led 15,000 people on a march through Memphis, expressing solidarity with the city's striking garbage collectors. The police and National Guard used clubs and tear gas to break up the march, killing one person in the process. In April following King's murder, 202 riots occurred in 175 cities across the country, with 3,500 people injured and 43 killed, mostly at the hands of police. Also in April, a peace march of 8,000 moved slowly through downtown Chicago. Having been refused a parade permit, marchers stayed on sidewalks and obeyed the traffic signals. Nevertheless, in an incident foreshadowing the Democratic National Convention later that year, a line of police pushed the crowd into the streets almost at once, another line of cops pushed them back onto the sidewalks. The situation quickly degenerated. Ignoring the orders of their superiors, police broke ranks, chasing and beating members of the crowd. A panel convened to study the incident lay the blame with Mayor Richard Daly and other city officials, who set the tone for the action by denying the required permits. In June, cops attacked a crowd of Berkeley students listening to speeches about the Paris Uprising, setting off several days of fighting. In July, police responded forcefully to racial unrest in Patterson, New Jersey. A grand jury later condemned the police for engaging in terrorism and goon squad tactics. 
The jury reported that teams of cops intentionally vandalized black-owned businesses and severely beat individual black and Puerto Rican people as an example to others. In August, Los Angeles exploded after police attacked a crowd at the Watts Festival. Three people were killed and 35 injured. That winter, when students at San Francisco State College went on strike to demand a black studies program, college president S.I. Hayakawa declared a state of emergency, ordered classes to resume, and called in police to make sure that they did. Hayakawa is perhaps best remembered for his assertion, there are no innocent bystanders. Skirmishes followed throughout December, during which individual officers broke from their units and charged into crowds of students. News photos showed police holding protesters while other cops maced them. The strike was finally defeated in January when police started making mass arrests, resulting in several felony convictions. This chronology is undoubtedly incomplete, but it makes the point. Police violence against crowds, sometimes perfectly innocuous gatherings, was utterly common. It was as frequent as it was extreme. Nevertheless, one event stands out as the paradigmatic police riot, the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Televised footage of the 1968 Democratic National Convention shocked the nation. Mobs of police were filmed beating protesters, bystanders, and reporters, viciously and indiscriminately. Over a hundred people were hospitalized as a result of police violence. Senator Abraham Ribicoff spoke on the floor of the convention against the, quote, Gestapo tactics of, in the streets of Chicago, unquote. George McGovern described the scene as a bloodbath, also making comparison to Nazi Germany. Norman Mailer commented, quote, What staggered the delegates who witnessed the attack, more accurate to call it a massacre since it was sudden, unprovoked, and total, on Michigan Avenue, was that it opened the specter of what it might mean for the police to take over society. They might comport themselves in such a case not as a force of law and order, not even as a force of repression upon civil disorder, but as a true criminal force, chaotic, improvisational, undisciplined, and finally, sufficiently aroused, uncontrollable. Unquote. Mailer's characterization of police behavior closely matches that produced by more systematic studies. Daniel Walker, in his authoritative report on the DNC, notes, quote, Fundamental police training was ignored, and officers, when on the scene, were often unable to control their men, unquote. Walker's report offers this example, quote, A high-ranking Chicago police commander admits that on at least one occasion the police got out of control. This same commander appears in one of the most vivid scenes of the entire week, trying desperately to keep individual policemen from beating demonstrators as he screams, For Christ's sake, stop it. Unquote. Such a breakdown in command, when paired with the widespread and excessive use of force, is perhaps the defining mark of the classic police riot. In his book, Police Riots, Collective Violence, and Law Enforcement, sociologist Rodney Stark offers a six-step outline as to how these riots unfold. 1. Convergence. There must be substantial numbers on both sides. 2. Confrontation. Either police actions attract hostile crowds or police deem some gathering illegal and move in to break it up. 3. Dispersal. Police attempt to break up the crowd. 4. The utilization of force. Police use force against the crowd. 5. The limited riot. Excessive or punitive force ends once the crowd is dispersed. The limited police riot is often signified by the disintegration of police formations into small autonomous groups, charging into crowds, chasing fleeing individuals, and beating people up. 6. The extended police riot. Attacks continue even after the crowd is dispersed. Extended riots are most common in densely populated areas, like college campuses or urban ghettos. 
Then, police attacks often attract new crowds, thus renewing confrontations. There are a number of factors that, in the right circumstances, give police actions this trajectory. Among them are specific crowd control tactics, operational deficiencies, the machismo inherent to cop culture, and a paranoid ideology that leads police to overestimate the threat crowds pose. On the tactical level, Stark notes, quote, the incapacities and misconceptions of the police contribute to the occurrence of police riots in a number of ways. First, simply massing the police together, given their lack of discipline and tactical competence, provides an opportunity for them to attack crowds. Second, massive displays of police power provoke demonstrators and tend to produce confrontations and deeper conflicts. Third, police tactics mislead policemen about what is expected of them and increase their anxiety and hostility. The obsession with the officer's safety tends to lead to over-preparedness, over-reaction, and a disregard for general safety." Unquote. Add to this an habitual reliance on violence, and the production of a riot seems quite predictable. These difficulties are exacerbated by organizational weaknesses common to police departments, namely the lack of internal discipline. The tactics of riot control are generally derived from the military, but the police proved to be a very different type of organization than the army. Quote, to put it bluntly, the American police cannot perform at the minimum levels of teamwork and personality and discipline which these military tactics take for granted." Unquote. For example, in the Detroit riot of 1967, the police and National Guard were responsible for establishing order on one side of town. U.S. Army paratroopers were assigned to the other side. Within a few hours, the Army had restored order to the area, having fired 201 rounds of ammunition and having killed one person. The police and guard, in contrast, fired thousands of rounds and killed 28 people, while the disorder continued. Quote, These dramatic and critical differences seem to have stemmed from discipline. The paratroopers had it, and the police and guardsmen did not. The army ordered the lights back on and the troopers to show themselves as conspicuously as possible. The police and the guardsmen continued shooting out all the lights and crouched fearfully in the darkness. The troopers were ordered to hold their fire and did so. The police and guardsmen shot wildly and often at one another. The troopers were ordered to unload their weapons and did so. The guardsmen were so ordered, but did not comply." Unquote. The guard, whose training approximate, approximates that of the army, may have lost discipline in part because of how they were deployed. The police effectively disorganized the National Guard by converting it into a police force. One National Guard commander complained, quote, They sliced us like bologna. The police wanted bodies. They grabbed guardsmen as soon as they reached the armories before their units were made up and sent them out. Two on a fire truck, this one in a police car, that one to guard some installation. The guards simply became lost boys in the big town carrying guns." Unquote. In the case of the 1968 Democratic Convention, other factors also came into play, in particular the attitudes of civil authorities. Walker mentions, quote, Chicago police had been led to expect that violence against demonstrators as against rioters would be condoned by the city officials, unquote. In fact, this expectation was validated. Mayor Daley continued to defend his officers long after his excuses could be considered in any way credible. One further fact complicates the picture. Much of the convention week violence was planned. Some reporters received warnings from cops with whom they were friendly. They were told the police intended to target members of the media. With these facts in mind, the police riot seems to take on a different air. The cops did not simply panic. They knew what they meant to do. While internal discipline broke down, the police action as a whole filled its intended role. Indeed, the cops had been encouraged and then protected by the mayor. 
Certain commanders may have been appalled by what they saw, or may simply have been afflicted by the managerial need to assert their authority in a crisis, but this did nothing to affect the behavior of the institution as a whole. Finally, it should be noted that the escalated force strategy itself contributes to the likelihood of a police riot. The police riot, by Stark's analysis, moves along exactly the same lines as the escalated force model. In fact, Stark refers to his six-stage articulation as an escalation model. The crowd control operation ends and the riot begins at the point where discipline breaks down. The implementation of the escalated force strategy tends to race toward this point. In practice, police commanders, quote, tend to maximize rather than minimize the use of force in order to maximize officer safety and maximize dispersal, unquote. Even though, quote, command control and tactical integrity tend to collapse in contact with crowds and as greater force is applied, unquote. In other words, as the amount of forces increase, the likelihood that discipline will be lost and that excessive force will be used also increases. This lapse, as we've seen, was generally either tolerated or actively encouraged by local authorities. In any case, it was a predictable consequence of placing large numbers of police in tense circumstances with neither the training nor the organization, not to mention the inclination, to respond with restraint. While the escalated force model did not always produce police riots, it also did practically nothing to reduce the odds that they would occur. In one sense, the police riot can be understood as the last step in the escalated force sequence. During the 60s, three additional problems with escalated force became clear. First, the deployment of large numbers of cops often created a confrontation that could have otherwise been avoided. Second, the rigid enforcement of the law and the quick re recourse to force provoked crowds and sometimes led to violence. And third, as a, crowd, a strategy for restoring order, escalated force failed. Revising the theory. Following the disasters of the late 60s, some people started to question the wisdom of a police strategy designed to escalate violence. Several commissions were set up to study the disturbances of the 60s, their causes, and the police response to them. Most prominent among these were the Kerner, Eisenhower, and Scranton commissions. All these bodies concluded that police actions against crowds often intensified and in some cases provoked civil disorder. They also recognized that the dangers of the escalated force model were not only tactical, but political. The Scranton Commission wrote, quote, to respond to peaceful protests with repression and brutal tactics is dangerously unwise. It makes extremists of moderates, de deepens the divisions in the nation, and increases the chances that future protests will be violent." Unquote. Consequently, these boards recommended a number of changes in police handling of demonstrations. The Kerner Commission, for instance, advocated a strategy emphasizing manpower over firepower, prevention over reaction, and increased management and regimentation of the police. A new strategy, Negotiated Management, was born. Negotiated Management was designed to correct for the excesses of the escalated force model. Under the Negotiated Management approach, quote, Police do not try to prevent demonstrations, but attempt to limit the amount of disruption they cause. Police attempt to steer demonstrations to times and places where disruption will be minimized. Even civil disobedience, by definition illegal, is not usually problematic for force. They often cooperate with protesters when their civil disobedience is intentionally symbolic." Unquote. Under negotiated management, arrests are usually only as a last resort, and force is kept to a strict minimum. Rather than trying to disperse the crowd, the police plan so as to contain it. Rather than responding to disorder with force, police calculate their tactics so as to diffuse potentially explosive situations. 
This innovation of this approach lies in the understanding that de-escalation is sometimes possible. Quote, the three most significant tactical tendencies characterizing protest policing in the 1990s appear to be A, under enforcement of the law, B, the search to negotiate, C, large-scale collection of information. Beginning in the 1980s, police strategy was dominated by the attempt to avoid coercive interaction as much as possible. Lawbreaking, which is implicit in several forms of protest, tends to be tolerated by the police. Law enforcement is usually considered as less important than peacekeeping. This implies a considerable departure from the protest policing in the 1960s and 1970s when attempts to stop unauthorized demonstrations and law and order attitude in the face of limited rule-breaking tactic used by the new movements maneuvered the police repeatedly into no-win situations. Unquote. Under the new model, police focus on preventing a disturbance rather than responding to one, seeking to control demonstrations through a system of permits and a series of negotiations with protest organizers. Elements such as the time of the event and the route of the march are agreed upon, and organizers are encouraged or sometimes required to provide their own marshals to exercise discipline over the group as a whole. A model application of negotiated management is described by John Brothers in his article, Communication is Key to Small Demonstration Control. Brothers documents a series of anti-apartheid actions on the University of Kansas campus and details the Kansas University Police Department's response. Between April 29 and May 9, 1985, the campus was the site of three moderate-sized demonstrations and several small ones, including some accompanied by civil disobedience. Sixty-five arrests were made, but there were no injuries, no property damage, and no violence on either side. This small miracle was accomplished by establishing friendly relations with the demonstrators and being patient enough to let crowds dwindle on their own. Police kept their presence to a minimum and carefully crafted a non-aggressive demeanor, in part by not donning riot gear. They also provided refreshments on hot days and waited to receive complaints before issuing citations. By these means, police won the cooperation of organizers, who met with them regularly to outline their plans. Clearly, this approach is better suited to a political system that espouses ideals of freedom and popular sovereignty, but the ultimate aim of negotiated management re remains the same as that of escalated force, or even mass maximum force before that, to control dissent to render protest ineffective. Looking now at the Scranton, Eisenhower, and Kerner reports, what strikes the reader is the apparent schizophrenia of them all. They decry social injustice with criticisms of racial discrimination, prison conditions, and the plight of the urban poor. They push for greater inclusivity at all levels of society, but they also denounce the activities by which attention was successfully brought to these problems and change affected. The Eisenhower report explicitly denounces civil disobedience, and the Scranton report insists that those responsible for campus unrest be disciplined. These reports push for rigorous adherence to constitutional guarantees of free speech and the like, while at the same time offering precise instruction on the means of limiting, containing, and controlling protests. It's tempting to read such documents as well-intentioned but politically naive defenses of the rule of law, but rather more appropriately, one might also understand them as handbooks for social managers and other responsible for controlling dissent. Taken as such, the report's advocacy of civil liberties and the principle of minimal force reflect the sophistication of the liberal approach to repression. Negotiated management was an innovation in the means of crowd control, but the basic aim remains unchanged. Both negotiated management and escalated force represent a defense of the status quo. Brothers' article, for example, emphasizes again and again 
the neutrality of the police, but notes that their plans were designed to, quote, minimize the impact of the event on the media, unquote. Presumably, had the demonstrations aimed at goals besides media attention, the police would have sought to minimize their impact in those areas as well. The Eisenhower Commission offers the Peace Moratorium March of November 15, 1969, as an example of the success of negotiated management. Quote, The bulk of the actual work of maintaining the peacefulness of the proceedings was performed by the demonstrators themselves. An estimated 5,000 marshals, recruited from among the demonstrators, flanked the crowds throughout. Their effectiveness was shown when they succeeded in stopping an attempt by the fringe radicals to leave the line of the march in an effort to reach the White House. Unquote. The nature of such an arrangement is not lost on those who study law enforcement. The academic literature describes marshals who police other demonstrators and who have a collaborative relationship with the authorities. This essentially is a strategy of co-optation. The police enlist the protest organizers to control the demonstrators, putting the organization at least partly in the service of the state and intensifying the function of control. The negotiated management model has its weaknesses as well. Its success requires a certain kind of cop and a certain kind of protest. If either is unavailable, negotiated management becomes impossible. The Philadelphia Police Department made a very early attempt at this softer approach and failed for the lack of the right cop. In 1964, Police Commissioner Howard Leary created a civil disobedience unit charged with both keeping order and protecting civil rights of the demonstrators. This unit was to be headed by an officer proven to be calm, patient, and friendly. His job was to build a relationship with protest leaders and work with them to keep the peace. The unit never functioned as it was intended to. Instead, it quickly degenerated into a domineering red squad. This quick return to the antagonistic approach was the result of several deeply rooted features of the police as a group, including the rejection of compromise and conciliatory tactics, an obsession with agitators and conspiracies, and the system of political sponsorship that guided promotion into the unit. Police protester cooperation requires a fundamental adjustment in the attitude of authorities. The negotiated management approach demands the institutionalization of protest. Demonstrations must be granted some degree of legitimacy so they can be carefully managed rather than simply shoved about. This approach has, until recently, de-emphasized the radical or antagonistic aspects of protest in favor of a routinized and collaborative approach. Naturally, such a relationship brings with it some fairly tight constraints as to the kinds of protest activity available. Rallies, marches, polite picketing, symbolic civil disobedience actions, and even legal direct action, such as strikes or boycotts, are likely to be acceptable within certain limits. Violence, obviously, would not be tolerated. Neither would property destruction, nor would any of the variety of tactics that have been developed to close businesses, to close businesses prevent logging, disrupt government meetings, or otherwise interfere with operation of some part of the society. That is to say, picketing may be fine, barricades are not. Rallies are in, riots are out. Taking to the streets under certain circumstances may be acceptable. Taking over factories is not. The danger for activists is that they might permanently limit themselves to tactics that are predictable, non-disruptive, and ultimately ineffective. On the other side, negotiated management opens a pitfall for police wherein they may come to rely on this cooperative arrangement. If the police assume that activists will conduct themselves within the bounds set by this approach, they leave themselves open for some nasty surprises. Essentially, this is what happened to the Seattle police in 1999. According to the SPD's after-action report, 
police planners adopted a negotiated management strategy early on and failed to consider contingencies that would make other options necessary. Despite well-publicized plans to disrupt the WTO conference, the police decided to, quote, trust that Seattle's strong historical precedents of peaceful protest and our ongoing negotiations with protest groups would govern the actions of demonstrators, unquote. On November 30, their mistake must have been only too obvious. When the institutional framework of protest was challenged, the cooperative relationship proved fragile and the basis of the negotiated management model was undermined. Not only did radicals refuse to play the game by its usual rules, even respectable protest groups were unable to keep their members in line. For example, when police changed the route of the officially sanctioned union march hoping to keep union members away from the center of the disturbance, they were surprised when several thousand of the marchers ignored the marshals, left the route, and joined the fray. The SPD offered this analysis of their mistake. Quote, While we needed to think about a new paradigm of disruptive protest, we relied on our knowledge of past demonstrations, concluding that the worst case would not occur here. Unquote. Such blindness is a typical fault of police agencies. Equally typical is the panic that follows a defeat, a panic felt not only in Seattle but around the country, resulting in the sudden shift in police tactics as demonstrations at demonstrations nationwide. Quote, Changes and learning processes of the police are initiated by an analysis of problematic public order interventions, that is, the police learn from their failures. The importance of the body of past experience, however, seems such that it prevents the police from anticipating change. Tactical and strategic errors con in confrontations with new movements and protest forms may trigger off a relapse into an antagonistic protest policing style. Unquote. In the wake of Seattle, the use of force has received a new emphasis. Riot gear, tear gas, mass arrests, and widespread violence have again become common features of demonstrations. While police violence has always been a possibility, it has lately come to resemble an open threat. Some of this is surely deliberate. The threat of violence is an effective tool for suppressing the attendance at a gathering, especially among portions of the population who are more routinely subject to police attack. It also serves to criminalize dissent. When members of the public see the police in riot gear, it is easy to assume that the crowd they are monitoring is dangerous or even criminal. But some of the police reliance on force is the product of desperation. They simply don't know what to do, and while they figure it out, the old-fashioned, straightforward head-knocking approach seems like a safe bet. A terrorist strategy. The police and other authorities are frantically trying to find new footing in their handling of protests. Naturally, their mistakes in Seattle figure prominently in the developing analysis. While everyone acknowledges that the police needed to be better prepared if they wanted to maintain control in Seattle, it is hotly disputed what precisely they should have been prepared for. The McCarthy Report implies that the police should have been trained, armed, and organized as though to repel an invasion. The City Council's committee notes that the cops weren't even ready to implement the plan that they had, and condemns the subsequent civil rights abuses and police violence. Essentially, the City Council's committee thinks the problem was not with the negotiated management strategy, but with its implementation. They urged not more force, but increased accommodation. Quote, It's clear to the committee that demonstrators who sought arrest, in order to underline their statements of principle, should have been accommodated by the police. Tear gas is a cruel implement to use against persons trying to make deeply felt statements against what they view as injustice. Unquote. But the City Council's perspective on this situation may rely on a misconception about what the protesters hoped to accomplish. 
Rather than seek symbolic arrest to underline their statements of principle, protesters intended to directly interfere with the WTO's work by blockading the conference and disrupting its proceedings. The police didn't understand this until the disruption was underway. The city council seems never to have figured it out. The McCarthy and Associates report implies that where negotiated management failed on November 30, escalated force succeeded on December 1st. If this is true, then the lesson the police should take from Seattle is that the negotiated management model is one strategy of control, but that to rely on it exclusively is to court disorder. The use of force must always be prepared for, if only as a backup. The LAPD has adopted just such a two-track approach, alternating between negotiated management and escalated force strategies, according to the circumstances. Two incidents from the 2000 Democratic National Convention suffice to make the case. On August 14th, after a concert in one of the designated protest areas, police cut power to the stage, declared the event an unlawful assembly, and gave approximately 10,000 people 20 minutes to leave through a single exit. A short time later, the cops attacked, charging with horses and firing rubber bullets. The Los Angeles Times reported, quote, In addition to rubber bullets, police also used pepper spray and projectile beanbags, striking many of the protesters and some bystanders as they fired indiscriminately for more than an hour, unquote. Jesse Jackson termed the police action unnecessary brutality. Commander Kalish called it, quote, a measured strategic response, unquote. They may both be right. The ACLU described the event precisely, referring to it as, quote, an orchestrated police riot, unquote. A few days later, the cops showed a different face when 37 people sat down in front of the notorious Rampart Division police station and refused to leave. Quote, the Civil Disobedience Action attempted to focus on the brutality, corruption, and violence of the LAPD. However, some of the organizers had collaborated closely with the Rampart Police prior to the action to work out the details of the arrests, and had followed some suggestions of the police in order to avoid what they feared would be the cops going berserk if taken by surprise. After presenting the police chief with a list of demands, one of the arrestees shook hands amicably with him as the cameras flashed. Ironically, the result was a PR media opportunity to showcase the civility and nonviolent behavior of the cops. Unquote. This incident shows the effective co-optation of protest when it proceeds through collaborative channels. It also shows the disciplining effect of police violence. The threat of violence motivates protesters to negotiate ahead of time and allows the cops to set the rules. As per the McCarthy team recommendations, a hybrid approach may incorporate escalated force as the primary strategy of control with negotiated management serving as a tool for police to establish boundaries. This approach works as a modification of the good cop, bad cop routine. If the bad cop is bad enough, he may only need to act in minor or symbolic ways to keep the crowd in line. Negotiation with the good cop starts to look more attractive, as does playing by the rules. This, in essence, is the strategy of political terrorism. The threat of violence is made clear at every turn, and a politically useful climate of fear is carefully developed in order to control the population. Terrorism and co-optation are thus subsumed under a single system. This is something we should learn to expect, the strategic use of both the good cop and the bad cop to control and ultimately to neutralize dissent. Organizational Changes If the 2000 Democratic Convention is any indication, it would seem that the biggest change since 1968 is the broadened range of tactics available to police. Police commanders have gained the ability to restrain officers when a good cop approach is in order. 
This is made possible by organizational changes connected both historically and conceptually to the process of militarization. Historically, the federal government prompted the development of negotiated management. The approach was shaped by the various commission reports, Supreme Court rulings, the development of the National Park Service permit system, and the availability of crowd control training at the U.S. Army Military Police School. In this respect, local police have followed a course similar to that of the National Guard, which was militarized after the 1877 strike wave. This new training was specifically designed according to the recommendations of the Kerner and Eisenhower reports. The negotiated management model arose at the same time and from the same sources as the militarization of the police. To make sense of this, it is important to understand that militarization does not only refer to police tactics and weaponry, but also to their mode of organization. The Kerner Report argued for it explicitly, quote, The control of civil disturbances requires large numbers of disciplined personnel, comparable to soldiers in a military unit organized and trained to work as a team under a highly unified command and control system. Thus, when a civil disturbance occurs, a police department must suddenly shift into a new type of organization with different operational procedures. The individual officer must stop acting independently and begin to perform as a member of a closely supervised disciplined team." Unquote. In short, it is military discipline that makes negotiated management a possibility, restraining the individual officers while maintaining the potential for a coordinated attack. This requires careful planning for the operation itself and a high level of discipline among the officers so that each one acts according to the established plan. Hence, militarization may increase the organization's overall capacity for violence, but may decrease individual acts of brutality, owing to a higher level of discipline. Previously, individual acts of brutality were tolerated or encouraged as a means of controlling the population through terror. But this approach can be limiting as it renders negotiation and co-optation unlikely. Militarization formalizes the strategy of violence at the institutional level. It thus maintains discipline and employs force more selectively, with direction from above. Ironically, while the conventional wisdom associates militarization with the escalated force approach, in point of fact militarization is essential to negotiated management. Moreover, as we shall see, militarization is a key component of community policing. And that's the end of chapter 8.